This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're coming to you a bit early this week with two main themes. We'll look at the fallout from moves to militarize the police in Honduras. And also, 40 years since the historic coup in Chile. We'll have an eyewitness account. But first, Kurt Devine is back this week. He has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The Colombian government agreed to negotiate with farmers on strike for the second week in a row. President Juan Manuel Santos previously said the government would not meet with agricultural protesters until they lifted roadblocks. Although farmers continued to block major roads throughout the nation, President Santos agreed to move forward with the talks. Those farmers who grow potatoes and onions, those farmers who produce milk and tomatoes and fruit, their complaints are valid. Their complaints make sense. Protesters accused the government of ruining Colombia's agricultural market with free trade agreements with the United States and the European Union. They have called the government to lower fuel prices and offer subsidies for agricultural products. The negotiations remain deadlocked, but the government made a deal to offer lower product prices and more loans to small-scale farmers. Thousands of teachers protesting in Mexico City have disrupted transportation and public events. The unionized teachers have blockaded roads and established a tent city in the capital's main square where they threaten to stay until the government abandons plans for education reform. Mexico's top division soccer league postponed two weekend matches due to the protests. The demonstrations have forced city residents to take alternative transportation routes, and many taxi drivers now refuse fares to protester-occupied neighborhoods. The teachers' union expressed plans to join with other protesters in a march against oil industry reform this weekend. New findings for a mystery in Mexico City. Authorities identified the remains of a dozen young kidnapped victims who were abducted at a nightclub in May. Police found their bodies in a mass grave 30 miles east of Mexico City. Mexico's attorney general says the kidnappings were acts of revenge for a series of murders between rival local drug gangs, not the work of major drug cartels. Media reports say that two of the victims have fathers in jail on charges of organized crime. Police have arrested seven suspects in connection to the crime. The findings have sparked new concerns regarding drug violence in Mexico City, which has previously been seen as a safe haven from drug violence throughout Mexico. A two-story factory collapsed in the Brazilian city of Sao Paulo, killing eight people and injuring 26. Rescue teams with sniffer dogs continued to search for two people who remain missing. The building was under construction at the time of the collapse, but the cause of the destruction remains unknown. City officials say contractors working on the site have been fined for not possessing proper permits. Building collapses are comparatively common in Sao Paulo, which is one of the cities scheduled to host the World Cup in 2014. Several Latin American leaders have publicly condemned notions of a U.S. military strike in Syria. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro said any outside actions taken against the regime of Syrian President Bashar Assad over the use of chemical weapons would result in disastrous war. 
Ecuador's foreign ministry said an intervention would violate Syria's sovereignty. Cuba and Bolivia have also expressed support for Assad's regime and criticized the figurative red line set by the U.S. regarding chemical weapons. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Earlier this month, the Honduran Congress and President Porfirio Pepe Lobo successfully pushed through approval of a new militarized police force. Their design is for the new force to combat the drug cartels and street gangs that have made Honduras the most dangerous country in the world. But questions remain about the strategy of the conservative national party ruling Honduras. For analysis, we turn to Adriana Beltran of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA. We talked to her via Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. In early August, um, President Lobo ordered uh, the military to provide uh, security in one of the prisons in Tegucigalpa after a gunfight. Um, this is not a new phenomenon, um, and as so you mentioned, so a gunfight in the prison between prisoners. There was a yeah a, a fight uh, within one of the prisons. It was a gang fight. Um, there were three gang members that unfortunately died, and twelve, uh, roughly more than ten or twelve people injured. Um, this unfortunately is not a new phenomenon, and surprisingly um, occurred a day after the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights had issued a report specifically on the situation of persons deprived of liberty in Honduras. Um, it's a very thoughtful report that I encourage everyone to read that talks about the problems within the prison system um, in Honduras. Um, unfortunately, you know, incidents like this are not without precedent, um, um, as is the, the use of the military for public security. It's a issue that we've seen um, time and time again under the Lowo administration. Um, every time there's some incident, uh, one of the measures that is implemented is often to call the military onto the streets. The most recent incident that happened, as you mentioned, was uh, not about a day or two ago, the um, Honduran Congress approved a law to create a military police. And in your opinion, is that a good idea? Uh, no, uh, for different reasons. Um, one, the military is not trained for law enforcement purposes. You know, the military is trained uh, to defeat an enemy. And a police, a professional police force and a democratic police force should be trained to provide protection for the citizenry. Um, that's one. Two, you know, we have historically the Honduran police has been extremely weak and there hasn't really been a strong focus on trying to establish a professional uh, police force. Um, sending the military onto the streets is basically taking resources away from a much-needed um, process of reforming um, the Honduran National Police. So this new force that we're talking about is actually just an arm of the military. It's, it's not a new force where there'll be new training uh, and different tactics. I have to look at the specifics of the legislation, but it's basically bringing military to conduct um, law enforcement. And as I mentioned, it's not um, a new thing in, in Honduras. I mean, from the beginning of the administration, there have been many um, calls um, to um, bring in the military to law enforcement through different operations. There was the um, you know, lightning operation where they brought in military onto the streets. Um, in Tegucigalpa and San Pedro Sula and some of the um, red zones or, you know, zones where you see the highest um, rates of crime and homicides. Um, there was uh, proposals earlier in the administration to change the legislation so that they would grant the military greater policing power. So this has been a trend um, throughout the administration. 
mainly in response to the fact that you have a country with the highest homicide rate in the world um, and the different measures that they've tried to implement to deal with issues of insecurity have um, unfortunately not been very effective. Starting last year, um, as a result of the um, assassination of the son and of Julieta Castellanos, who's the rector of the National Autonomous University and his friend at the hands of the police, there was immense pressure on the part of civil society and the citizenry in general to address the issues of rampant corruption within the police force and the justice and um, security sector institutions. Unfortunately, many of these reforms and the measures that have been implemented have not been effective. Um, I would say mainly because there is a, la um, a lack of a clear strategy, um, an integral, comprehensive, long-term strategy to address many of these issues. So oftentimes what you see are different measures. Some you know, have been good, others not so good. Um, to address the issues of, cor of internal corruption um, and of insecurity in the country. Honduras is infamous, perhaps, for its iron fist anti-gang policies, the Monodora policies. I, some would argue because of the crime rate and their failures at, at getting a grip on this murder rate that's the worst in the world, that something has to be done. Isn't that an argument for maybe bringing in the military? Uh, you know, we've seen it. It's, uh, Honduras is not the only country where we've seen this happen. Um, yes, you do have extremely high rates of, of homicide. Um, but, you know, in all this time where, you've, where they've brought in the military, it has not had a positive impact, long-term impact. Um, again, it goes back to how do you address many of these issues and in analyzing what's um, producing or what are the factors behind um, the high levels of, of crime in Honduras. Um, one of them, you know, is the, is the gang issue. Um, you mentioned the Iron Fist policies, and I would say if you look at the results or the impact that the Iron Fist policies had, not just in Honduras, but also in El Salvador, Guatemala, where they were also implemented, they were extremely negative. And I think rather than contributing to lowering the um, rates of violence and crime, they actually made the situation a lot worse um, because they incarcerated numerous um, young individuals. Um, oftentimes, you know, because they appeared to look like gang members, um, it created huge problems of overpopulation in the prison system, but also led to um, gangs becoming a lot more hierarchical and changing their structure. Let's talk um, about the conditions in the Honduran prisons. Mm -hmm. We have only talked about that very briefly on this program. But this summer, we've talked quite a bit about the attempts at a gang truce in Honduras. So what does this say about the success or lack of success for a gang truce between the main street gangs in Honduras, which are some of the most violent street gangs in the world? And, and what also does it say about prisons in Honduras. Is the central government really in control of its prisons? Uh, no. Um, I mean, if you read the report of the Inter-American Commission, uh, which was just published not too long ago, they clearly state that one of the uh, main factors for the crisis that you see um, in the Honduran prison is the fact that, one, there's been just an absence of comprehensive public policies. Um, with regards to a correction system. And part of it is the fact that um, the state has ceded all basic aspects of prison administration. That's 
you know, where you see problems of um, extreme overcrowding, um, you know, lack of hygienic conditions, to all these different incidents that have um, occurred, unfortunately, over the years. Um, you know, we had we initiated by talking about the most recent incident in one of the prisons, but it's not um, the first one. In 2012, you had um, the fire in the Comayagua prison, which led to 362 prisoners uh, burning alive. You know, before that, in 2004, you had another fire where over 100 inmates also also died. Um, so it's a, clearly a crisis that you have in the penitentiary system, and unfortunately, um, part of it is the result of the fact that the government lacks clear policies, comprehensive policies, but also, you know, effective uh, control of the prison system. This is all happening as a backdrop to a very intensive election campaign. Has this issue found its way into electoral politics in Honduras? Um, security, you know, given the rates of violence, is clearly on top of the public agenda. Unfortunately, I would say that I haven't seen um, from any of the political parties a clear plan or strategy as to how they plan to address um, the security situation, which is very unfortunate and worrisome. Um, you see, you know, particularly from the part of the National Party, because the candidate is also the president of the Congress, many initiatives and measures emerging. But I would say that um, neither of the political parties have prevent, uh, presented a sound proposal for how they intend to address not just the issues of, you know, violence and insecurity, but how do they intend to move forward on much-needed reforms within the police, the public prosecutor's office, or the judicial sector? You mentioned Juan Orlando Hernandez, the mm-hmm. president and head of Honduras's Congress. Um, we also mentioned President Lobo. Um, even if this is not playing out in the electoral campaign, is Hernandez the one who has really initiated this militarized police force, or is this really something that is being pushed through at the end of the Lobo government? Um, you've seen some measures being... Um presented or, or advanced by Juan Orlando. So there have been some legislative uh, measures that have been implemented, not just the most recent one with the, um, with the uh, approval of this new military police. You know, not too long ago, they um, also established the Special Forces de Tigres, which initially um, also included members of the military um, that was a proposal that was um, pushed by Juan Orlando and his party. Um, but you've also seen it from the part of the executive, and I wouldn't say it's uh, you know, measures that have been pushed toward the end of the government. In fact, I would say that from the beginning, um, bringing in the military has been one of the actions that they have taken when um, you either see um, some kind of crisis emerge or high-profile um, assassination, for instance. Um, I think many times it's, um, and that's why I say there's been a lack of a strategy because I think many of these actions are taken um, as a quick response to public demands um, for the government to do something given the high crime rates. Um, and so the easiest um, measure to take is, okay, we're going to bring in the military um, rather than have a thoughtful plan, an integral plan as to how do you address some of the um, professionalization of the institutions, but also take different measures to try to quell some of the crime rates. Thank you so much, Adriana Beltran, 
of the Washington Office on Latin America, Wola, joining us today via Skype. Thank you. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Staring us down on the calendar is the important date of September the 11th. What many in the U.S. do not realize is that is a cataclysmic date in Chile, because this year it will mark the 40th anniversary of a military coup. That coup brought the infamous General Augusto Pinochet to power. The Reverend Joe Eldridge was in Chile during that coup. Now Eldridge is the university chaplain at American University. He shared his remembrances with us. On that day, the Chilean military suddenly, with a violence, a brutality, a vindictiveness, uh, 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 took over the government of Chile. Uh, And it stunned not only the Chileans, it stunned the world because of the way it was done. Tension was building in Chile through the summer. There was a Tancaso in June of 1973 which was an, um, we, a dress rehearsal for the coup that was to, going to take place on September the 11th. We didn't know that. Um, the um, Allende government had called back Orlando Letelier from Washington, who became part of the cabinet and was actually the minister of defense at the time of the coup. Allende, the, um, the military uh, launched the coup on the early hours of September the 11th. The city was on lockdown. There was really a 24-hour-a-day curfew. And the Chilean military, with uh, clockwork precision, the military established effective control within hours. They controlled the media. They took over. The, they bombed the presidential palace, and Allende was killed. The president was killed. This is a democratically elected president, who was elected in September of 1970. He uh, was part of a coalition of parties that, he's a socialist, was a socialist. He was a part of a coalition of parties that included the Communist Party. The Washington and the Nixon administration, literally days after his election, set about methodically to undermine, disrupt, and destroy the Allende government that is documented, and they were they, the 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 uh, fruits of their labor, if if uh, as it were, uh, came or realized on September the 11th. I was living in Chile at the time, and it was the the day that we call it the other September 11th. It was the day that my life was utterly transformed. How was it transformed? It was transformed because I was. Working in a working-class, uh, poor neighborhood on the outskirts of Santiago, I actually saw the Hawker Hunter bombers bomb the Moneda. I saw from a distance the smoke rising from the central city. And uh, people were terrified. People came rushing out of their homes into the street to embrace one another. By later that afternoon, tanks were rumbling through the streets. People were disappearing. People were being disappeared. 
uh, it was a time of great panic. So I was uh, working in this working as a kind of community organizer, and I was also working with a group of North American Christians representing all the faith communities, mostly Catholic. And we knew that the United States was up to a lot to a lot of mischief, and we were trying to document U.S. intervention in Chile. We were trying to figure out what was going on and let the sponsoring organizations, our organizations that were sponsoring us in the United States, know about what was happening so that they could put pressure on the Nixon government to keep, you know, get their cotton-picking hands off of what was going on in Chile. Now, what's interesting is that we thought we were small fry. We didn't think that the military was good. We were, after all, North American. We thought we had some protection because we were North Americans. The coup was on a Tuesday morning. Five days later, the military burst into our office, stormed the, uh, knocked down the door, confiscated all our files, arrested the two people who happened to be in the office. They were taken immediately, whisked away, and taken to the soccer stadium. The, uh, did next, you ever see them again? We did see them about 10 days later. We, uh, but the next day, on Monday morning, uh, uh, two or three of us went to the U.S. Embassy to inquire as to their whereabouts because we knew that people— the soccer stadium was a big holding pen for thousands of political prisoners. And there were uh, uh, all kinds of uh, stories about people who were being executed in the soccer stadium and tortured in the soccer stadium. So, And we, we know that that's true. And we know that's true. So immediately the next day we went, and I, I had not been to the U.S. Embassy. We went to the U.S. Embassy. We knocked on the, we asked to see the political officer. And when we got to the embassy, the message from the embassy to us, this group of North American Christians, we were serving uh, with our faith communities in uh, Santiago, we were told that, uh, in effect, we were... Um, uh, had we not been involved in the kinds of activities that we were involved in, which was, as I said, which was completely uh, transparent, open, above board, uh, we wouldn't be uh, in this situation. So in effect, they were laying the blame on us for the fact that our colleagues had been disappeared and basically showed us the way to the, showed us uh, out the door. They did absolutely nothing. And uh, so that we were... <laughs> We were more frightened and more uh, alarmed. And and so uh, I remember I was living, frankly, in this in this neighborhood, and people were friends of mine were disappearing in the middle of the night, and I knew that the uh, security forces had my address. So I, I packed up and left. I left that, that place where I was living, and I went to what's called the Barrio Alto, which is the more wealthy, uh, affluent neighborhood where there was less military activity and uh, found a friend who would take me in. And I never, I mean, I, I went back to collect my things later on, but I never went back there to live because Americans were, in fact, uh, uh, two Americans, Frank Teruggi and Car Charles Horman, were both killed uh, in the days uh, following the coup. You have a connection to Charles Horman. Uh, I do have a connection to Charles Horman. I mean, I have been uh, working with his widow, Joyce Horman, uh, for years. Uh, as she, and, and, and his 
father and Joyce, the widow, his father, Edmund Horman, went to Chile to try to find out what happened to his son. And it was all in a film, uh, a, a movie by that starred Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek called Missing. And I believe it came out in the 1980s. I would encourage people if uh, to go to their Netflix and borrow a, uh, borrow uh, a missing uh, because it does it documents it tells the story of the effort of Charles Horman to find his son in the in the days following the military coup. We know more about that now. We know that there were not just Chileans responsible for his death, but but others. Yes. Well, we don't know for sh- I mean, we can we can speculate. I don't. I mean, there there have been some uh, thought that uh, other intelligence agency, including our own, were involved in that. Although I I don't think that's ever been documented. To be honest, I, I saw recent reports that the CIA liaison in the embassy in Chile was uh, was noted as someone who had advised the Chileans uh, on the Harmon disappearance. That is fair. I, I have not seen that report, but that's, that's certainly consistent with every, all the information I have about the disappearance of Charles Harmon. But the, the United States government immediately responded with massive amounts of military assistance, and they moved quickly to try to prop up and support this new dictatorship. So my, my story is basically I, I left Chile under some pressure about seven weeks later, came to Washington with a passion, with a mission, with a purpose, and that was to see what I could do to suspend, cut off military assistance to the Chilean government. There were some allies in the United States Congress who um, believed that uh, it was inappropriate and just plain wrong for the United States to be supporting de facto despotic military governments around the world, which the United States was doing. Um, Much of this was engineered by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. I like to say, and and I've spent the last 20, 25 years working on international human rights issues, and I I like to say that Augusto Pinochet Ugarte and Henry Kissinger launched my career in human rights because it was in, in many ways a response to the brutality and the, of, the, uh, uh, of the military dictatorship that, that, prof- that profoundly affected me, profoundly changed me. At the end, Pinochet was called to question and called into various courts for his actions. Uh, what are your thoughts about Henry Kissinger? <laughs> um. Well, I think Henry Kiss. I believe Henry Kissinger is probably a war criminal. Uh, uh, there was a famous visit to Chile during the General Assembly of the Organization of American States, and in which he uh, assured the Pinochet government that he had to say some things critical of the government. That that that. The, but the Pinochet government should rest assured. Should be assured that this is only for public consumption. This is for the Congress. You know that you will continue to count with our blessing. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. (laughs) The Reverend Joe Eldridge, University Chaplain at American University, visiting with us again on Latin Pulse.
Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much. And now a footnote. Last year, Chile's Supreme Court issued an extradition order for former U.S. Navy Captain Ray E. Davis in connection with the killing of Charles Harmon. Davis was in charge of covert intelligence operations for the U.S. Embassy in Chile during the coup. The Chilean court ruled Davis could have prevented Harmon's death, but instead approved his killing by Pinochet's regime. Davis's wife says he long maintained his innocence. She says he no longer can communicate as he suffers from Alzheimer's disease and is in a nursing home in Florida. And now a programming note. Latin Pulse will be back online next Friday, September the 6th, from Caracas, Venezuela. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, Henteflow, and MusicaQ. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.